Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Takeshida Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Takeshida is the Chief of Optometrical Services and Coordinator for the Children's Programs for the Center of the Partially Funded, as well as Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute here in Los Angeles. The Dr. Bill Telephone Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. And the topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational complication, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. Tonight, we are extremely honored to have as our special guest, Dr. Mark Borchert, Director of the Eye Birth Defection Institute and Eye Technology Institute in the Vision Center at Children's Hospital. And Dr. Borchert is also an Associate Professor of, and clinical, of Clinical Ophthalmology and Neurology at the Keck School of Medicine of the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. And we are just so honored to have you, Dr. Um, Dr. Borchardt. Thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, yes. I, I have to diddle that and say even much more. It's so exciting <laughs> that we have so many people here on the call. And right now I think somebody just dialed in. Uh, would you please mute your phone, the person who just dialed in, by pressing star six? And we're going to go ahead and begin our discussion this evening on the endocrine disorders that are often associated with optic nerve hypoplasia. Now, for many of you, you may have attended our lectures in the past with Dr. Borchert when he described what is optic nerve hypoplasia and how it is now one of the leading causes of vision impairment among children. But this condition does not only affect the vision of these children and later adults. For some of these children, it may be where they're totally blind, but others may have a higher level of vision. But what I've learned from Dr. Borchert's lectures is that many of these children also have other types of medical problems that really need the direct attention of an expert such as Dr. Borchert. So to begin with, Dr. Borchert, would you please give us a brief overview for many of our listeners who may not have heard our previous lecture of what is optic nerve hypoplasia? Yeah, well, I'm happy to do that. Uh, this optic nerve hypoplasia is a, as you mentioned, a uh, now very common cause of childhood vision impairment that is manifested by small optic nerves. And the small optic nerves are visible to an eye doctor looking inside the eye but otherwise, it's very difficult to diagnose. The small optic nerves are caused by the fact that the number of fibers in the optic nerve or axons in the optic nerve are markedly diminished. I have used the analogy of a video camera many times, but it's akin to having a normal video camera connected to a normal television, the television being analogous to the brain, but that the cable that connects the camera to the brain is deficient of wires, and consequently, you get a fuzzy or no picture on the television. Uh, the camera itself is fine. In the same way, the eye is fine in children of optic nerve hypoplasia, but they are missing the axons or fibers in the optic nerve, which causes their vision to be diminished. As you alluded to, the problem with these kids is that it is a condition that is not usually confined to the eyes. The optic nerve is really part of the brain, 
And if you're deficient in fibers or axons in your optic nerve, you're also deficient in fibers or axons in your brain. And so consequently, there these kids have many other neurologic problems, but in particular they tend to have endocrinologic problems, endocrinologic problems meaning hormone problems, um, because the most common area in the brain that is missing fibers aside from the optic nerve is a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus sits at the base of the brain, really right next to where the optic nerves attach to the brain. So it seems as if there is a problem in the formation of this part of the brain that leads to hormone problems that these kids have, but may also lead to the optic nerve hypoplasia. Now, for parents who have a child that has been identified as having optic nerve hypoplasia, what are some of the signs or symptoms that parents should be on the lookout for that may suggest that there is a endocrine order disorder? Uh, that's an excellent question, and it really sort of depends on the age of the child. So in infancy, the children uh, present with uh, several problems. Um, they, the children are commonly born with jaundice or develop jaundice within the first couple days of life. Jaundice is the yellow skin that comes from, uh, from bilirubin accumulating in the skin. Bilirubin is normally excreted by the liver, and in children with optic nerve hypoplasia, they often, uh, the ducts, the small ducts in the liver that help uh, excrete the bilirubin into the gut and get rid of it are not formed due to the lack of some hormones that come from the hypothalamus, ultimately, and they uh, that results in um, uh, jaundice. So that's one of the earliest uh, signs that we see in kids with optic nerve hypoplasia that's an indication of an underlying hormone problem. In addition, the uh, newborn children may have uh, um, signs of hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, and low blood sugar is an indication of uh, hormone deficiency, particularly cortisol, which is uh, secreted by the adrenal gland but is stimulated by the, the pituitary and hypothalamus, or growth hormone. And so if you're missing either growth hormone or cortisol or you're deficient in it, even to a minor extent, you can have low blood sugar. And so low blood sugar in an infant, in a newborn, is uh, usually manifested by lethargy. The child is somnolent, not very responsive, but then responds to feeding, and uh, um, and then becomes you know more active with the feeding. In bad low blood sugar uh, cases of severe hypoglycemia, they may present with seizures, um, and uh, um, so that's kind of the things we're looking for in the neonatal period. As children get older, uh, the signs of pituitary problems are 
quite different. So um, if a child in the first, say, six months of life has, uh, in the case of boys, a small penis or undescended testicles, it may be a sign that they're missing some of the sex hormones. And if you're missing the sex hormones, you're often missing other hormones. Girls are are harder to detect that in. Um, they may have um, uh, smaller genitals than normal, but that is you know, obviously difficult to detect in them. Older children still um, will present uh, quite differently. They may present with low blood sugar that results in um, seizures, but that's relatively uncommon um, that occurs in the most severe cases. They may present the most commonly in the young childhood years, say between ages one and five, with uh, slow growth. They basically fall off the growth curve. So the leading, the most common hormone that is affected with optimal hypoplasia is growth hormone, and that leads eventually to poor growth. Now, kids may be growing normally for the first several years of life, even in the absence of growth hormone, um, but almost all of them eventually fall off the growth curve by age six, and so um, that would be the most common thing that we see um, in slightly older children. Um they may also be generally lethargic, um, uh, maybe uh, not quite as um, responsive in terms of um, uh, you know intellectual type of responses uh, as a sign of uh, low thyroid hormone, and so. Um, so if the children tend to be uh, sort of sluggish um, in, uh, in ages two to four, that range, um, or uh, falling behind intellectually with their peers, um, uh, that could be a sign of a thyroid hormone uh, deficiency that needs to be treated. So those are the main uh, ways that young children present. When you get much older, then you start to see issues with puberty, and so um, they may have precocious puberty, that is early onset puberty, so we will occasionally see kids at age six or seven starting to go through puberty, developing uh, uh, pubic hair and, and uh, breasts and that sort of thing. Or we may see children, on the other hand, having delayed puberty. We may see kids who are 14 or 15 who still are not starting puberty. Either one of these uh, can be a sign of hormone deficiency in children. And unfortunately, if those are very hard to predict in advance unless they had uh, um, um, evidence of, for instance, a small penis at birth or or blood tests that showed they had sex hormone deficiencies at birth, it's very hard to detect that because after about the age of six months, you do not make any of the sex hormones until you start to go through puberty again. So you cannot test for that within any blood test after the child is six months old. 
those are the main uh, uh, kinds of manifestations that we see of uh, children with hormone deficiencies. Now, Dr. Borchert, many times parents, they will ask us, if you have identified that their child with optic nerve hypoplasia has an endocrine disorder, they often ask, how are these hormones then given to the child? Does this mean the child goes to your office for a shot or is this something the parents give the child a shot or a medication? Or how are these hormones usually administered? Uh, that's a good question. The, so the, it depends on the hormone. Uh, so, uh, so for instance, growth hormone, which is the most common deficiency, has to be given as a shot. Fortunately, um, the uh, devices for administering these shots are are really excellent now, and the needles that are used are extremely fine, and really not, and they don't go very deep at all. They're very shallow, and they um, are really not painful uh, and, uh, to give. Um, the um, other hormones, most of the other hormones, can be given by mouth. Obviously, in the young children, that means. A liquid formulation of some sort. Some of these have to be specially compounded by pharmacies to make them into a liquid, liquid formulation. Uh, but most of them can be given as pills that can be taken as older for older kids or ground up and put in their food. Um, and um, and that's primarily it. Now, and sometimes for the uh, kids who are going through precocious puberty, they also need injections. Usually, these are monthly or, or bi-monthly injections um, to uh, stop um, puberty from progressing until we're ready for, for that to happen. So um, it really depends on the, uh, on the hormone that's deficient. Now, with uh, the children who do receive these particular types of hormones, what happens if it is such that the child is older and never receive the proper hormones until the child is maybe four or five. And how does that affect the development of their their brain? Would you say that a lot of these children, if they don't receive the hormones early enough that it affects the development of their brain and these children may, in fact, have a, a learning disability? Well, again, that depends on the hormones. So we now know that... Um, a significant, uh, significant percent of the children who have learning disabilities or, and cognitive impairment um, are due to untreated or undertreated low thyroid hormone. They have a thyroid hormone deficiency that's undetected early and is not treated, and consequently they end up with uh, uh, brain developmental problems. Now, and that probably accounts for maybe a third to a half of all the cases of children who have cognitive impairment associated with optic nerve hypoplasia. Um, so that's a, the most severe one, and that really cannot afford to be missed. Um, the, um, if you have cortisol deficiency, um, you get recurrent episodes of low blood sugar, 
uh, and you may get recurrent episodes of seizures, and that is likely also to cause uh, brain development problems. But usually that is picked up relatively quickly because people notice the seizures and notice the hyperglycemia, whereas the thyroid hormone deficiency is not so obvious. The other hormones are not known uh, to affect brain development if they're deficient. They have other impacts on the child's life. So if you're growth hormone deficient, obviously you will stop growing, and if you don't get treated with growth hormone, you will um, uh, be very short if you undergo puberty before treatment. Um, your bones will stop growing and will be very short. Children who are growth hormone deficient also are prone to having decreased muscle mass and increased fat uh, in the body. Um, um, but um, yeah, the treatment with growth hormone alone does not uh, eliminate that problem. It just makes them grow better. That may treatment with growth hormone may in, improve the the lipid profile, that is the cholesterol and triglyceride levels in the blood, and therefore uh, decrease your risk for cardiovascular disease and that sort of thing. But it doesn't really, if you, for instance, have obesity associated with growth hormone deficiency, and you treat with growth hormone, it does not get rid of the obesity. Um, uh, it just simply increases your uh, muscle mass and um, probably decreases the serum lipids, lipids in your blood, but not really getting rid of the fat on the body. Um, and so those are the main uh, benefits uh, uh, of treating most of the hormone deficiencies. Uh, there are a couple, there's a, a hormone we haven't mentioned, which is um, antidiuretic hormone, which is made by the pituitary gland and is responsible for allowing you to concentrate your urine. So if you're not drinking enough water, uh, it, your urine becomes concentrated, becomes darker yellow. And uh, kids who are missing this hormone cannot do that, and so they are always urinating very dilute, pale yellow urine, and then they are prone to become dehydrated and their salt levels in their blood can get very high. And uh, that's called diabetes. That can be a life-threatening condition. Um, obviously, if it's a life-threatening condition, it's also a brain-threatening condition. But um, that uh, uh, can be uh, uh, treated as long as the children have access to water and they have normal thirst mechanisms that in enabling them to drink. Uh, they can keep peeing really dilute urine and not get into dangerous problems. But there, we can replace that hormone as well um, with, uh, with a pill. Um, so um, everything is quite treatable and, and it's picked up uh, early enough. All, all the developmental problems can be, all the developmental problems caused by hormone deficiencies can be prevented. Now, Dr. Borchard, is it routine that if an ophthalmologist or optometrist identifies a child with optic nerve hypoplasia, 
Is it routine now that these children are referred to an endocrinologist, and is there a specific panel of tests that are run, or is it really the tests that you recommend are the tests that are being performed to rule out endocrine disorders? Uh, good question. The, so it depends. I think it depends on the locale. So in some, at some, in some groups of practitioners, they refer all of these children to the endocrinologist. In some, they just refer them to the to the pediatrician, who then does the blood tests and routinely rechecks everything, uh, and then refers to the endocrinologist. Uh, only if there's a problem. In my case, I'm a little unique. I don't think most ophthalmologists order the, the necessary test, but I order the necessary test. And um, if they're abnormal, that helps me to triage the patient to an endocrinologist quickly. So if it's if they're abnormal, I get them into the endocrinologist right away because I can report to the endocrinologist the abnormality, and they're willing to see them right away if it's a known abnormality. If it's if they're normal, I still get them into the endocrinologist for following long term, but um, it's less urgent, and uh, so I just get them a routine appointment with the endocrinologist to be seen at the next available time, rather than an urgent appointment if. Uh, as I would do if any of the tests were abnormal. So there's a really a, a, a pretty broad spectrum of practice patterns out there um, that people adhere to. Yeah, and I, th- I think that here in Southern California, we're, we're so fortunate that we, we do have you. You know, it makes things very easy, but I'm certain in other parts of the country, uh, this could be very difficult for parents and, and teachers. But it sounds as though if the endocrine disorder is diagnosed early, there really is good treatment so that these kids can continue to grow and develop. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I'd also like for you to discuss with the audience is something that I, I learned at one of your lectures, and it always it has always stuck with me because in my everyday practice, when we examine children, we're seeing more and more and more children with autism or autism spectrum disorder. And I remember you had mentioned something of the fact that there are so many children who have optic nerve hypoplasia, but they also have behaviors that are similar to children with autism spectrum disorder. Can you say a little bit about that, and does that at all seem to be related to any type of endocrine disorder? Uh, um, so, yeah, we we know that um, uh, autism is more common in blind children in general, regardless of the cause, than in the population overall, it is. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. But that, but in fact, if you look at it carefully, it probably is dependent upon the cause of the blindness. Um, the we know that, in fact, in the, those kids who have decreased vision due to optic nerve hypoplasia, they 
higher still. And we there is some debate about how common it is in optic nerve hypoplasia. And the reason there's debate about it is because, as you alluded to, there's some difficulty in defining autism in children who are blind because so many of the features we look for to diagnose autism have to do with visual behavior. The child is blind, they can't exhibit those behaviors, and therefore may be misdiagnosed as having autism because the criteria for diagnosing autism have really been developed or cited in children. So um, what we are missing is a test that has been you know, validated for blind children to diagnose autism. That, that is a test that looks at autistic features that are independent of vision. And uh, we have worked on this. We published one paper on how, on how you can do that. But that, and that it works in blind children, but to validate it on large populations to determine what the actual prevalence of autism is in different in kids with different causes of blindness, that has not been done, and it's something that probably should be done. So um, the features of autism that we can see in these kids that may not be a sign of autism are are obviously lack of eye contact, but other things like you know pronoun reversals uh, in their speech, you know, um, uh, calling them, you know, not referring to themselves as I or me, but rather than uh, rather as you or she, uh, echolalia, rep- repetitive um, uh, uh, sounds. Repeating the sounds that that other people are making, or words that other people are making, repetitive behaviors such as rocking, finger tapping, that sort of thing. Examining things in a way that uh, sighted children don't, for instance, smelling an object um, uh, that is also commonly a feature of autism. Um, uh, so those kinds of things can be mistaken uh, for autistic behavior when it's not related to autism at all. Nonetheless, wow. uh, so nonetheless there are lots of kids uh, who have true autism in this population, and uh, it, there's, it sort of cuts both ways. There are kids who are misdiagnosed because who don't have autism but are diagnosed as other than their kids who are who, who uh, do have autism that are underdiagnosed because people attribute their behaviors to their vision uh, when, in fact, they also have autism. When it comes to referring the child with optic nerve hypoplasia and autistic behaviors, are you familiar, are there specific programs that are really more geared to work with the child with autism and vision impairment as compared to the child with autism who has normal vision? Yeah, my, my, I think I have a, a skewed experience. Um, 
my impression is that um, the children, the, the the children who the, the people who, the children who are in educational facilities that are geared towards blind children. In other words, the educators are used to dealing with blind children on a day-to-day basis. They are better able to detect those that are likely to be true autism from those who are, have autistic behaviors blindness. The problem is if they're... If they, and so if, if the... They ultimately, they have to be diagnosed by an autism expert, but most of the autism experts don't have any experience or have very limited experience dealing with blind children. And so consequently, they tend to uh, overcall the autism. And so um, it's really critical, in my opinion, that the autism experts who are assigned to make the diagnosis are working hand-in-hand with the educators of the blind children to help them distinguish those features that are likely just due to blindness as opposed to mm-hmm. autism. And so yes. I think if they're pre-screened by their educators, the educators for the vision impaired, they are much more likely to be accurately diagnosed than if they're sent primarily from the eye doctor directly to the autism specialist. Uh, I, I like to see them go through the education to be diagnosed properly. Now, this is just very, very interesting because, as we could see, the autism becomes so much more complex because it's not just a vision problem, but we have the issues that could be affected by the endocrine system, but they may also have these other situations that's related to autism spectrum disorder. But what I would say is that with the children that we have seen over the years with optic neurohypoplasia, uh, there's many of them who really, really do very, very well. And one of the people who's on the call this evening, she asked me to ask you specifically the question about your longitudinal study. I remember, it may be over 20 years now that you've been studying uh, children with autism. And is there any new updates or news regarding the findings of autism? Excuse me, optic nerve hypoplasia. Okay, yes. Well, we've been we're at this about 20 years. That's exactly right. And um, <laughs> the uh, we're constantly finding out new things. But there, everything comes in kind of these uh, small increments, you know. So all the things we've already talked about, you know, the prevalence of uh, hormone problems, prevalence of autism, um, the risks for these things and so forth have all come from this study. So the recent stuff that uh, we are in the process of uh, publishing are uh, 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 number one, we've uh, reaffirmed um, that there, you cannot predict hormone problems based upon the MRI scan. In other words, children who have osteoarthritis are commonly have abnormalities of their brain that are that show up on the MRI scan, but the, none of these predict the presence or absence of hormones. 
hormone problem. Uh, the other thing that is uh, uh, relatively new is that you, it does not appear that you can diagnose um, optic nerve hypoplasia by MRI scan. In other words, um, there are many cases now, and we haven't published this yet, we're just finishing the manuscript, but there are many cases in which the nerve looks normal on the MRI scan and they actually have optic nerve hypoplasia, and even many more cases where the nerve looks small on MRI scan and they do not have optic nerve hypoplasia, so the MRI scan is not uh, does not substitute for a quality eye examination. Um, uh, let's see. The, um, the things that come to mind is the most recent uh, 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 things that uh, people probably haven't read yet. You know, Dr. Borch, I want to ask you a question about that MRI so if a child has the MRI and the optic nerve looks smaller than normal on the MRI, that doesn't necessarily mean that that child has optic nerve hypoplasia. Now, is that simply because the density of the fibers inside the optic nerve are just much higher density than a typical optic nerve? Um. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, you know, an MRI scan is, um, um, you're not actually seeing the fibers in the nerve, you're seeing the space, okay? And um, it only has so much resolution. That is, you know, when you get down to fractions of a millimeter, uh, you, know, you get the um, optic nerve, uh, can it, it you, you just can't see it anymore. The problem is that um, changes in a fraction of a millimeter are very difficult to see with an MRI scan. So you have to remember, you know, a normal optic nerve, you know, behind the eye is only about two millimeters in yeah. diameter. Okay, and so yeah. if you're 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 already approaching the limits of the resolution. MRI scan just um, because oh. it's a relatively small structure. And so you get all kinds of variabilities that are just technical variabilities, uh, you know, uh, that what we call artifacts uh, in the thing, you know. So it, it really is dependent upon the, uh, the radiologist looking at this cross-section through a tiny optic nerve that's already tiny and being able to put a cursor on, on it and measures diameter precisely when, in fact, you're already, there's so much noise in the system that, you know, you it's very hard to precisely measure it. And consequently, when you're talking about fractions of a millimeter difference between normal and abnormal, um, it's, uh, mistakes are made. Yes, yes. You know, I'd like to ask you a question about a, a, a specific patient that we happen to see today. Uh, this little boy, his name is Gabriel. He's four months old. He's uh, a young Latino boy. And his mother didn't know a lot, but she did know enough. And what she had said is that he was born with a diagnosis of hydrocephalus. And he also had septo-optic dysplasia, 
but she didn't know anything or she had never heard of the terms optic nerve hypoplasia. And when we looked at the way he uses his vision, he had peripheral vision, but he had much less central vision. And the mom said that recently they did a procedure to reduce the hydrocephalus, and uh, she did notice that his eye alignment had improved, and today his eyes were aligned straight. So um, my questions are, what's the significance of the septum pellucidum as it relates to optic nerve hypoplasia? Is that something that is really critical in terms of making the diagnosis? So, um, the septum pellucidum is a structure in the middle of the brain that basically is just fibrous tissue that divides the space in the middle of the brain where there's fluid, and it divides it into what we call ventricles, the lateral ventricles. It's just, uh, it's just like a, it's like a, it's like a, the, uh, a, 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 a it's like a, a drum. It's like it's just a band of tissue that stretches through the middle of the brain. It has no function. Um, and it was noticed years ago, 1970. Actually, it was noticed even earlier than that, uh, late 40s, that kids that some kids with optic nerve hypoplasia can also be missing this structure in their brain. And, and, then, the, and then in 1970, it was noticed that kids with optic nerve hypoplasia could be missing the structure in their brain and also have pituitary problems, hormone problems, and that's and when that happened, the the name septo-optic dysplasia was um, applied to this combination of missing the septum pellucidum and having hormone problems as well as having optic nerve hypoplasia. And people then thought that if you're missing your septum pellucidum, that means you're going to have hormone problems. And if you're not missing your septum pellucidum, you're not going to have hormone problems. And so people would make the distinction between septo-optic dysplasia, that is, kids who had optic nerve hypoplasia who were also missing their septum pellucidum, compared to those who had optic nerve hypoplasia who had a normal septum pellucidum, as if the kids with a normal septum pellucidum weren't at risk for having other problems, whereas the kids who had, were missing their septum pellucidum were at risk for having other problems especially hormone problems. And it turns out that that's all wrong. That in no. fact, that it doesn't, whether or not your septum pellucidum is intact or not uh, has no predictive value for anything. And that's, that is, it doesn't predict whether or not you're going to have hormone problems. It does not predict whether or not you're going to have developmental problems. It doesn't predict anything. And that's really what you would expect when you know that the septum pellucidum doesn't do anything. If you're missing your septum pellucidum, it's like missing your appendix. It just doesn't matter. So, and, and also then, Dr. Borchert, if a person is missing the septum pellucidum, that is also not a diagnostic uh, finding that you would say this, this child has optic nerve hypoplasia. No, and in fact, if you really look through literature, only one out of 13 kids who are missing their septum pellucidum also has optic nerve hypoplasia. Missing the septum pellucidum is not a rare finding. Uh, we, if you do routine scans, I mean, people don't do routine scans, you know, but now that now that scans are becoming so widely available, people are doing scans for uh, 
minor head trauma and all these things that we never used to do them before. And so we're getting more and more normal children who are having scans. And in so doing, we're starting to realize that a lot of things that we thought were rare are really very common. And missing the septum pellucidum is one of them. We pick it up all the time on kids who come in just because they fell mm-hmm. off their bike and they get the scan done and they get their and they they find they're missing their septum pellucidum. Now too often those kids get sent to me to rule out optic nerve fibroplasia and, and we're talking about children who are totally normal with normal vision and everything. But they pick this up on an MRI scan and they say, Oh, it must have optic nerve fibroplasia so they get sent to me and of course they don't. They're totally normal. Um, and so in fact, um, it's uh you know, only I think it's about thirty five percent of kids with optic nerve hypoplasia are actually missing their septum No and boy. Only one in thirteen kids of missing who are missing their septum pellucidum have optic nerve hypoplasia. So there's an association there. The two go together but they're not one does not predict the other. Well, I'm going to refer this child to you. I don't. I don't know how easy it is for children to get appointments with you. Is Children's Hospital Los Angeles still taking Medi-Cal? Oh sure. Okay. What is the best way to refer a child to you, such as this one that we're, we're really at loss of not knowing what is his diagnosis? Uh, what is uh, well, the best way to refer? Just uh, call the Vision Center at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and ask for an appointment. Um, and and they'll take the insurance information and they'll, and, uh, and they'll schedule it. The um, uh, I would say, though, that um, in, in this child that you're describing, um, if, in fact, the... Uh, after shunting for the hydrocephalus, their vision is improving and their eye alignment is improving. That is not uh, suggestive of optic hypoplasia. That's suggestive of a cortical vision impairment due to hydrocephalus. Uh, yes, that you said it was primarily, you know, they're primarily using their peripheral vision and then their eye alignment improves. So. Uh, it's far more likely that this missing the septum pellucidum is a red herring and it's causing yeah. people to make a diagnosis of septo-optic dysplasia inappropriately. And that, it, because when you're missing your, many kids with hydrocephalus are missing the septum pellucidum and, um, and they don't have optic nerve hypoplasia. And so the diagnosis is far more likely, just, well, just playing the odds, that he has hydrocephalus with cortical vision impairment that resulted in poor vision, just using his purple vision. And once he was shunted, uh, the vision starts to improve, and his peripheral vision improves, and, is, and as that happens, his align, eye alignment improves. Now, yes. kids can have both. Kids can have optic nerve hypoplasia and uh, hydrocephalus at the same time, but the presence of uh, the absence of the septum pellucidum is not what should make you suspicious for optic nerve hypoplasia, as I already mentioned. That, that that just because they have hydrocephalus and they're missing septum pellucidum, you should not be thinking, oh, they must have optic nerve hypoplasia as well. That's very unlikely. Um, no, that but, that is that is so helpful because that's what the doctor and I we were discussing. We said. 
this child is functioning much more like a child with cortical vision impairment and not optic nerve hypoplasia. You know, so that is excellent. Well, Dr. Borchert, uh, I know that you are on a busy schedule, but do you have time to answer a couple of questions that we could uh, have anybody who has a question for Dr. Borchert unmute your phone by pressing star six, and you may announce your name if you like. I, I know that so many of you have known Dr. Borchert for years that you might want to say hi, but let's go ahead and uh, let's limit it to three questions. All right? Who has the first question out there? Hi, um, my name is Carly Medeiros. I live in Wisconsin, and I was wondering. Um, I know that I've heard a lot about um, uh, like treatment with the stem cells, and um, I guess I was just wondering if, like, I also heard about nerve regenerating, and maybe if that was also a possibility. Okay, so this is a. Um, a very common question. Um, in terms of nerve regeneration, the optic nerve uh, com- is completely done growing by the 16th week of pregnancy. You do not get any additional fibers in the optic nerve after that. And in fact, you lose them uh, from that time on until you're born. In fact, 70% of the nerve, the fibers when your optic nerve are lost before you're even born. And then you continue to lose them after you're born until you die, and so that somebody who dies at age 90 has about only about 60% of the nerve fibers that they were actually born with, um, assuming they had no other problems with their eyes. So that's a normal attrition of nerve fibers that go on. And you, at the present time, we have no way of regenerating an optic nerve. Um, there is no, nobody has ever demonstrated any ability to regenerate an optic nerve. Um, people have suggested that if you could get that stem cells, since, you, since stem cells can turn into any kind of cell in the body, that's why we call them pluripotent. Pluripotent means lots of potential for, for um, to be multiple different things. Um, they, uh, we could get stem cells to regrow an optic nerve. Well, in the laboratory, we can actually get stem cells to um, uh, turn into retinas and to turn into, and those retinas can actually produce ganglion cells, and the ganglion cells are the cells in the retina that generate the optic nerve. And you can actually get those ganglion cells in the laboratory to route new axons or fibers that theoretically should make up the optic nerve. And so this has everybody very excited about the potential for using stem cells to uh, to regrow optic nerves. Um, and I'm, my laboratory is one of the laboratories that's doing this. Um, but that's a far cry from putting stem cells currently into a child and getting them to grow the optic nerve because um, the, the stem cells that are stem cell therapies that are out there right now that um, people are using uh, and you can get these especially in other countries 
um, through medical tourism, the, mm-hmm. um, those stem cells are not the kind of stem cells that we're using to grow retinas in the, in the laboratory. There are um, cord blood stem cells. Those stem cells do not turn into neurons, do not turn into any part of the brain. They turn into blood and blood vessels. Mm-hmm. Cannot get those cells to turn into neurons. Where and so um, that currently will not work. We actually wrote a paper on this, showing that kids who go to China, for instance, and get the stem cell therapy that they sell there for lots of money, um, in fact, mm-hmm. do no better than the kids who didn't get anything. This is with, with mm-hmm. carefully matched controls and so forth. In fact, uh, they do a little worse. Um, than the kids who got uh, nothing in terms of improvement in vision and that sort of thing. Now, that's not to say there's not hope. In fact, the problem with that therapy that they use is not only that uh, the the stem cells they're using will only grow blood vessels and blood, um, but also that's foreign tissue. It comes from somebody else. And so it's rejected anyway by the body Mm -hmm. almost immediately. So what we're doing uh, is um, we take blood from the patients themselves and we take their white blood cells and in the laboratory we turn them back into their own native stem cells. Not cord blood stem cells, but their native stem cells that make up their entire body. And we then force those stem cells to turn into eyes, into retinas and optic nerves in the laboratory by feeding them with special kinds of factors. And the time period that it takes to do that is about the same time period that it takes to occur in a normal embryo, a normal fetus. Okay, so it takes many, many weeks, several months, for these retinas to grow and to turn into normal kind of what look like normal retinas, normal fetal uh, retina uh, in the laboratory. Uh, but we can do that. So... Um, so this is is really fantastic. It's the kind of latest, greatest thing in uh, biology right now is understanding uh, how this works. So obviously most people are saying, well, "Gee, this is great! You can this is you can regrow a child's retina in the laboratory, and it's that child's retina. So theoretically, you could transplant that retina back into the patient, and it not be rejected by the patient because it's its own." It's, it would be recognized as his own. It won't be rejected. Well, theoretically, that's true, and that's a great thing, and that's what everybody is shooting for. It's like the Holy Grail. But what we're using it for is something much more basic than that, which is we're hoping that we can understand if we take children who have optic nerve hypoplasia and we grow, regrow their optic nerves in the laboratory and we take other children who do not have optic nerve hypoplasia and regrow their retinas and optic nerves in the laboratory, is there a difference in the way the two grow? Where do things go wrong in the kids with optic nerve hypoplasia? Is there some inherent difference in these kids with optic nerve hypoplasia that make it not grow right? And if there is, then can we force it to grow right? Because we don't want to take the optic nerve from a, take a stem cells from a child with optic nerve hypoplasia if they're pre-programmed to not grow normally. We want to reprogram so that they will grow normally. And so uh, if we're going to have a therapeutic 
uh, option with this. That's what we have to do. And so we have to understand what is going wrong with these kids in the first place. And the focus right now can't be on, oh, just let's do a transplant. Let's go ahead and make them regrow their optic nerve. The focus first has to be on what goes wrong with these kids in the first place. And mm-hmm. then we can focus on the treatment because otherwise we're, we're flying blind with our treatment. We don't know what we're doing, and we're no better off than the folks in China who are putting cord blood stem cells in people's spinal cords. That's really interesting. But we, you do know, I'm sorry for the second question, but you do know, like, narrowed down around what week it's, like, that development occurs, right, in the fetus? Uh, we know when the optic nerve develops in the fetus. We know very well. But we don't know what goes when it goes wrong in kids with optic nerve proplasia. So we don't know, for instance, is, did the nerve not develop right in the first place? Or did it develop right, but then an excessive number of axons were then lost more than they were supposed to much later in development of the in the in utero and during the pregnancy. So no, we don't know when it goes wrong. It may be that the that the natural cell death, the natural loss of axons in the optic nerve that occurs in every one of us before we're born. Remember I said seventy percent of our fibers are lost before we are even born and that is a normal process. We don't know if the problem isn't that that goes awry, that the the, the the signals that tells that process to stop or to slow down don't work, and so you lose mm-hmm. more than you're supposed to. It may have nothing mm-hmm. to do with growth of the optic nerve in the first place. It may have to do with not turning off the normal cell death that occurs much later. So even though the optic nerve develops in the first 16 weeks of pregnancy, lots of processes that are going on beyond those 16 weeks that may in fact, contribute to optic nerve hypoplasia. We don't know. We have to understand so this is why we're trying to work on this in the laboratory first to figure mm-hmm. it out. That's very, very interesting information. Well, Dr. Borchert, I know that uh, you have another event to attend this evening, right. so we really thank you for your time. And I'd like to ask, do you have an organization or foundation that if any of our listeners would like to donate to your research, how can they donate there? Um, yes, the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles has a, a foundation, and you can uh, uh, make it and you, online. You can go to Children's Hospital uh, Los Angeles website and make a donation, and you can specify uh, to that the fund should be used for optic nerve hypoplasia research. And there is an optic nerve hypoplasia research fund that is established, and you just simply specify that the donation go for that purpose. But but and it, uh, it, it, and it's quite easy to do, and you can just go to the website and make a donation. Great. That's great. Well, we hope that all of you will do that. And, Dr. Borcher, we really thank you for this really great, great information. It, it's hopeful. It gives us hope, and it lets us know how the research is thinking. And yeah. so we thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. Anyway, thank as you usual, so much. It was a delight. Man. <laughs> Thanks again for inviting me. Oh, absolutely, Dr. Borcher. Thank you so much. Thanks for the candy. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> the least you can do. <laughs> okay. okay. Enjoy. <laughs> Good night, Dr. Borchert. Good night. And 
have coming up next month? Yes, um, next month we're, we'll be focusing on ocular albinism and oculocutaneous albinism. And uh, again, we, we hope you all will join us at 7.30 next next uh, month. And I'll be sending out announcements um, you know, a week or so before the, uh, the call. Thank you so much. Okay. So again, thank you everybody for joining in this evening. And we'll send you all emails so that you could listen to this podcast uh, from Airs LA. So, good night, everybody.